let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Hey folks, on June 3rd, just about two weeks from right now, CityCast is going to be recording live at Right Proper Brewing Company in Brookland. We're going to be talking craft beer with the executive director of the DC Brewers Guild. There's more information on our Twitter and Instagram. We're at CityCast underscore DC. Today on CityCast DC, DC's mayor made a trip to Congress this week, and it maybe wasn't as bad as it could have been. CityCast's Priyanka Tilbey and Julia Karen are here with me for our weekly news roundup. We are also going to be talking about the latest twist in the push to reinvent Union Station. And the Washington Mystics season is just kicking off. We will discuss how to be the best possible fan. Today is Friday, May 19th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. All right, so Priyanka, you watched the mayor's trip to Capitol Hill, which, as we talked about on Monday, the advance previews were grim indeed. The expectation was it was going to be several hours of members of Congress from far-flung districts who don't represent people who live here wagging their fingers and scolding uh, the mayor of Washington about things that are uh, conveniently right-wing talking points. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What wound up happening? Yeah. I mean, frankly, I was really hesitant to watch because of that. And then also it was the same day as the D.C. budget vote, which frankly feels a lot more consequential (laughs) since it's about how the city spends its money. So a lot of my attention on Tuesday, which was the day both of these were happening, was on the budget vote instead, Um, which if you're curious about that, check out our episode from yesterday. We had the Washington Post's Michael Bryce Sadler on to talk about what made it into the budget, what was cut, who won what battles. It was pretty rowdy over the past few weeks. But then I did turn my attention to what was happening with Mayor Bowser up on the Hill. We got to say that the day started on Congress with the Senate passing the disapproval resolution about D.C. policing reforms. So these are like the reforms that uh, like restrict some policing tactics. It makes it harder to hire officers that have past misconduct. A lot of different police reforms that have been in place temporarily in D.C. and they're trying to make them you know, permanent. The Senate voted to strike that law um, by a vote of 56 to 43. So some Democrats jumped in there. Just, you know, not the happiest start to a day that's going to be about D.C. oversight. Um, Little aside here, it's interesting the legality around all of this because the Senate vote came 60 days after the House vote. And so D.C. leaders say like, you're too late. You acted too slowly. This is already D.C. law. But the Senate parliamentarian is like, oh, we get veto power over your laws for any time two years after something passes. So this is like a whole. Wait, 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 wait. So so like to go into this loophole for one minuscule second, you're telling me 
anything that's passed in the last two years potentially is on the table to just be like, gonzo, done, whatever. That is what the Senate parliamentarian is saying. It is really confusing because D.C. leaders have responded to that being like, that is not how we understand the oversight legislation. Um, So, you know, we'll see. (laughs) We'll see what happens there. Regardless, Biden said that he was going to push the police reforms through anyway. He was going to veto the disapproval resolution. Um, But this is just like a really murky, bizarre start to a day about D.C. oversight. And then it kind of just went all uphill from there, which was very surprising. Um, Even Eleanor Holmes Norton, our non-voting D.C. delegate, came out and said like she was surprised but elated by some of the things that went down in this hearing. It turns out that Bowser and James Comer, who is the head of the Oversight and Reform Committee, they have a lot of opinions in common. Um, They both opposed the D.C. criminal code reform, which Congress overturned earlier this year. They both want the U.S. attorney for D.C. to prosecute more crimes, which hasn't been happening. Um, 67% of the arrests that came across uh, the prosecutor's desk did not make it to trial last year. And then both Bowser and Comer also want more federal workers back in the office. They're like, this remote working thing is not good for, well, Bowser says it's not good for downtown. I imagine Comer says it's not good for productivity or something. It was just shockingly congenial. To be clear, we didn't have a moment like we had in the last hearing where Rep. Gary Palmer called D.C. schools inmate factories and Clay Higgins called the city a liberal haven where prosecution is virtually zero and crime is rampant. Like, we didn't have a contentious moment like that where they were like, actually, your city sucks. No, no. The most (laughs) contentious thing I saw was also Clay Higgins um, trying to come at Bowser over like statehood kind of. He was like, is there any other municipality that has access to our seat of government as the citizens of Washington, D.C.? And Bowser was like, actually, they all have more access because they have voting members of Congress and two senators. Um, He tried to say something about like, oh, but a D.C. resident can run into, you know, all hundred senators at a party and you can rub shoulders. Yeah, that time I've run into every single human that's ever been on Capitol Hill and told them, yo, give me Yeah, that's what Bowser said. She was like, I have never been at a party with all of the senators. What are you talking about? (laughs) Right. But that was the original reason, like going back to, you know, in the room where it happened. (laughs) Um, that there was not, that this was going to be a, the capital of the country would not be part of a state. Right. The idea that like the residents of that state would then somehow get an unfair amount of influence uh, over the function of the government. And the kind of obvious response to that, which I don't think Bowser really gave, I mean, her, her response was correct, is that somehow the rest of the world manages to uh, have seats of government where the uh, residents are fully empowered and where it doesn't constitute some kind of unfair system. Um, And uh, uh, we probably can do it too. Um, (laughs) And uh, that also that, I mean, the the weird thing is that, 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 that kind of 18th century logic is especially untrue now when uh, for a lot of members of Congress, you know, the only time they spend like in non-capital parts of DC are like during their ride to and from national, where they go uh, for every four or five days a week when they're not voting. Um, We're in a moment where they don't really have to live here anymore. They often don't live here anymore, where thanks to the internet, social media, people are able to be 
just as close and just as persistent and just as much of a pain in the butt of members of Congress if they don't live here. So it's a kind of an especially outdated anti-statehood argument. And like all the arguments, kind of on both sides, it's a little bit fallacious because the, the real logic on both sides is if D.C. were a state, it would be more democratic votes, uh, maybe balancing out some of these empty rural states that have a lot of Republican votes. That's, you know, for, for everyone who's not a D.C. resident, that is kind of the driving force. For those of us who are D.C. residents, it's just kind of humiliating and embarrassing that we have to answer to these guys who don't live here and don't answer to us when it comes to all kinds of things about how we police ourselves or tax ourselves or so on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, the focus of this oversight hearing was meant to be crime. So some of the crime things that came up on the positive side, or at least as far as I'm concerned, positive side, Comer said something about how his team would look into the Harris Rider, which is the one that bars DC from taxing the sale of cannabis, which is like the main thing that's holding up proper regulation of sales in D.C. That's why we have all these weird gifting shops and medical license loopholes to be able to sell marijuana in the city. And then on the more contentious side of things at this oversight hearing, they might have been nice to Bowser, but they were not nice to the U.S. attorney for D.C., Matthew Graves, who was there with her. She had invited him along to answer questions, um, and the Republicans went after him. The main thing was the the failure to prosecute that I talked about earlier. Uh, he said that the reason they haven't trial for every single arrest last year or even a majority of them is because of the unaccredited crime lab, um, D.C.'s forensic crime lab. Famously lost accreditation recently, and Graves says that that makes it hard for them to, you know, hold up these cases in court. This is something that Bowser has also criticized him for. She's like, you've got plenty of federal dollars to be able to to pay for proper lab work. So that was that was a big thing that the Republicans went after him for. I mean, did they mention that they would like either pour more money into it or they would help assist in like building the crime lab back up? Or was it just like you suck at your job, <laughs> like just prosecute more, even if your crime lab is bad? Comer literally started the whole hearing saying that we're disappointed with the way that you are doing your job. So, yeah, Great. I mean, like these oversight hearings aren't really about solutions, are they? It's just Republicans poking the bear, being like, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. That's why I was so surprised to hear about Comer wanting to talk about the the cannabis rider, because that is indicative of like some sort of solution-oriented thinking, which you don't normally see here. But look, we can also, I mean, underneath all of that, but I agree with you, it's just about poking the bear and getting headlines back home where people, where people don't have to actually live in D.C. There is like a real thing, but, you know, crime is up. And this question of, like, how much do we prosecute is like kind of the nub of a lot of issues. It was a big point of the criminal code reform that Congress overturned. They were going to make it e easier for more people to get jury trials. Putting people away was going to take more time and more effort and more prosecutors and more cops showing up to testify. And part of the logic there was on the part of people who think we lock up too many people and, and, and think we prosecute too many people, part of the logic was if we make it more time-consuming to prosecute, then fewer people will be prosecuted. So there is, you know, in the reform side of the aisle, 
there is a desire to prosecute fewer people. And there is like a great a philosophical difference there. Bowser and the Republicans in Congress are on one side of it and progressives in D.C. Uh, are on another. So they kind of framed it as like, you're not good at your job, you're not doing your job. But the fact is, there's a lot of people who want him to uh, not prosecute more people, particularly for kind of nickel and dime stuff. Yeah, misdemeanors, nonviolent crimes. And he did say that the the cases that they have taken to trial are the violent offenders. And the ones that they've dropped are the ones where they're like, this isn't worth the extra crime lab dollars because these are petty crimes or or misdemeanors. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree. That's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. All right, so cast your eyes while we're up on Capitol Hill, just go a couple blocks north and uh, you find Union Station, which is a beautiful, beautiful building and one that uh, we can't ever seem to get quite right. It was redone as a shopping mall 30 or so years ago. And now if you go there, it's uh, kind of empty and grim. And there is a, a long awaited uh, federal plan to redo the thing. $8.8 billion, the details of it got released this week. I don't know if you guys got a chance to see it. Um, it's pretty beautiful. It's part of a plan that would that would also cover up tracks and basically create a new neighborhood up there between Noma and uh, Union Market. The station itself would be preserved in a way that kind of keeps the old beauty of it, but creates big new concourses, new shopping, more capacity. Um, and the idea is to make this like a really welcoming gateway uh, to Washington. Um, it, it's supposed to take like 18 years. <laughs> um, wow. And we know that that actually means probably like 20, 25, 30 years. 30. So, 30. so you've got some time to peruse the blueprints. My my thought, you know, reading this was like, one, hey, that looks like a cool station. And two, you know, we talked about this yesterday with the K Street Transitway, the idea that, so this is like an idea that's been kicking around since 2012, that kind of germinated in pre-COVID world 
and now is going to live in post-COVID world, a world where there's a lot more working from home, a world where we're anxious about retail being able to survive at all. And it's kind of, a, you know, they're in a, a the city is in a tricky situation because on the one hand, you know, a better station, a more convenient station, a, a station where you don't have to line up in those ridiculous snaking lines oh my God. You know, past Au Bon Pain is better for getting people to come to D.C. And especially now, it's we need, you know, every incentive we can get to have people come in. On the other hand, uh, building a station geared towards, uh, like, increasing rail commuting to Washington, I don't know if that's the best investment at a time when we're not sure if people want to commute to work, period. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wonder if the aim is to maybe facilitate more tourist travel via rail, but that would require a commitment from all of the different cities and hubs up and down the East Coast. So that's probably a bit ambitious. And also, like, I don't know if you guys make your your, uh, vacation uh, planning uh, decisions based on the quality of the train station (laughs) someplace. I think most people would make it based on how often the dang train comes. Right. And uh, unless you're in the East, talking about the East Coast, the answer is not very often. That's true. But I think this redevelopment, particularly the the new housing and, and neighborhood thing, this Burnham place that they say they want to build up, is so contingent on this revision to Union Station happening. Like, do we even think, like, that will be a possibility? Like, they want a whole new neighborhood, but it's contingent on local dollars and federal dollars and a supposedly 12-year plan, but we actually know is going to be like a 30-year plan to make a new neighborhood right. place. So they, they don't have the funding for this yet, but but it is uh, eligible for some of the infrastructure funding under President Biden. And uh, one thing we do know about President Biden is he's spent a lot of time in the uh, He in does love station. his Amtrak. Um, yes, he uh, does love his trains. But I think that that's the, the right point is that, you know, if this all goes right in 50 years when we look back on this, I think the much more important thing than the new concourses and the wider train berths um, is going to be the idea that that uh, this uh, city with incredibly high housing prices and incredibly tight market um, created sort of new capacity uh, up top. Yeah, I also think that it's an area of town that feels very uh, industrial, which most of D.C. does not. And I know that this is decades down the line, but I'm looking forward to it being a more neighborhood feel. All right. So who is going to be um, picking up lunch when we all go out to this new neighborhood in uh, 15 years? Oh, God. <laughs> I vote for Priyanka Fang. <laughs> I got you. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Let's talk mystics, you guys. The, uh, those of you who watch our Washington Wizards know um, it's not a great epoch for um, men's basketball in uh, the district. Uh, the mystics, on the other hand, have had uh, uh, a lot of success and um, for those of you who haven't gone, they've got this like really cool facility across the river, and it's a lot of fun and enthusiastic and kind of pure joy in the in the audience. Um, is there going to be pure joy on the court this year? What's the what's the prediction for how the team's going to be? Okay, the vibes are going to be pretty good. Uh, Elena Deladon, who is uh, the team's like unicorn, uh, and if you want an explanation of why, you can listen to our interview with Kate Yonchulis of Just Women's Sports, who explains why Elena Don is like one of the greatest players to ever play. Aside from the fact that she has the most spectacular name. That's true. That is true. Fabulous name. So she is finally healthy. She's had back issues in the past, but she says she's 
ready to rock. Natasha Cloud, also healthy. Ariel Atkins going to lock it down on defense. Like, we're going to see a team that is pretty stacked and probably as healthy and ready to rock as we've seen in years. One of the changes that they did make is that they do have a new coach, but it's kind of the same as the old coach. (laughs) Uh, So Mike Tebow, who was the coach and general manager of the team, stepped away from on-court duties. He's only going to be GM. And his son, Eric Tebow, is taking over. Oh, wow. He was an assistant for 10 years. Yeah. Runs in the family. So yeah. new guy, same as the old guy. We'll see. Their first game is tonight. They play the New York Liberty. And if you've been following any of the news, you'll know that the New York Liberty is kind of a super team now. They got Brianna Stewart, who is a local from New York. They got Sabrina Ionescu signed to a new contract. They got Courtney Vandersloot signed from the Chicago Sky. They got a former MVP candidate in John Cole Jones. Like this team is loaded. But the Mystics might be a sleeper pick to make some noise in the playoffs. It should be fun. It should be interesting. Oh, wait, so is, is this a situation where you can just get tickets the same day if you're if you're deciding to wing it, or, or do they tend to sell out? So you can definitely get tickets the same day. Uh, it is one of those things where I would recommend like searching for the prices closer to game time. Uh, they tend to drop in price closer to game time, especially if you want to be... Uh, as Kate mentioned, closer to the actual court and the Mystics bench where they're making the most noise and having the most fun. So I would lurk on Ticketmaster. I would lurk on SeatGeek. I would lurk on your app of choice to find your tickets uh, and go that way. And when we're talking like cheaper tickets, how cheap? Like what do you pay on average when you go to a Mystics game? So in the past, I've typically paid like $35 to go to a Mystics game. Sweet. I mean, yeah, sad, but also good. like sad for the team that that that's kind of what they're valued at right now. But that's awesome as a as a viewer. To be fair, I was looking at tickets for this, and the cheapest tickets I saw were fifty eight dollars, and that's with fees included. So get them while they're hot. Get it while you can get in. There's limited seats because the ESA is pretty small. I think it's like two thousand, maybe five thousand seats. So get in while you can. Not bad though. That's really yeah. not bad for a last minute ticket to a sports game. Yeah, for a good team, too. Yeah. So. Oh, wait, can I nerd out for a minute? Do it. Switching from uh, pure athletics to DC history slash clothes. Um, they've got a, a cool New Jersey concept. Can you tell about that? Yeah, so every year the WNBA releases this series of jerseys called the Rebel Jerseys. Uh, it's a time where people can use new and different art and styling and kind of give a voice to the city. Um, You might have seen some of the older versions of the Rebel jerseys. They're like pink and blue, and they say Rise on the front. I thought they were pretty sick. These new ones are inspired by civil rights activist and educator Nanny Helen Burroughs, who apparently started one of DC's first women's basketball teams. Wow. Which I didn't know. Yeah, at her national training school for men and girls. Uh, So across the jerseys, the words like struggle and battle and overcome are going to be on the jersey, and then, like, Think Loudly and Think Boldly is going to be on the waistband. They're kind of like this black and white color scheme, I guess, to maybe reference the monuments. I think they're kind of cool. I love that. Would you buy one of these new 2023 Rebel jerseys, Priyanka? Maybe by the end of the season, if I become a major Mystics fan, which you're you're making the case for, so it could happen. I won't say no. I try. All right, we have a tip of the day, which is actually Mystics-related. What is it, Julia? Okay, so this might come as a shock to some people. The Mystics are the only WNBA team with a pre- and post-game show on TV. Uh, So DC is going in for women's sports. Love to see it. Uh, You can check it out on NBC Sports Washington. So if you're a streaming person, if you're a cable person, 
Uh, yeah, you can get all your Mystics news there, and you can sink your teeth into some pre- and post-game action. Sounds like a really fun time. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mike. That is all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Susanna Brown. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter for heaven's sakes. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye.